Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest question, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is the former vice president of the Humane Society of the United States, the world's largest animal protection organization, who debuted his animal advocacy career by founding Compassion Over Killing as a high school uh, club and building it into a national organization over the following decade. Since then, he has co-founded The Better Meat Co., a disruptive B2B startup with ingredients and products on over 7,100 American grocery store shelves, partnered with industry giants such as Purdue, and created to address concerns from climate change and poor public health to food insecurity and animal welfare. Being a longtime leader in food sustainability and called a major force in the struggle to reduce farm animal suffering, he has shared his expertise as a four-time TEDx speaker, been interviewed by hundreds of news outlets from CNN to StarTalk Radio with Neil deGrasse Tyson, has 20 years of experience as a nonprofit executive, and has published more than 100 articles in publications such as TechCrunch, Washington Post, Fortune, Forbes, and countless daily newspapers and academic journals. He has also written the national best-selling book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World, which is a fascinating look at the future of food and the innovators who are working to interrupt and reinvent the food system. Has been translated into seven languages and has been praised by dozens of authors, government leaders, nonprofit giants, cellular agriculture pioneers, and business titans such as Eric Schmidt and Jack Welch. Sharing his belief in the power of commerce to help solve many of humanity's biggest problems, a sentiment we strongly agree here with on the Evolve podcast. His Business for Good podcast showcases leaders such as CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey, and former VP of McDonald's, Bob Langert. I'm honored to welcome CEO and co-founder of The Better Meat Co., national best-selling author of Clean Meat, and a man who tried to bring a six-foot whale harpoon on an airplane for a TEDx talk, Paul Shapiro. Brandon, it's my pleasure to be here. That's very kind. You must have talked with my mom uh, to get that type of information on me. So it's very nice of you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, you had quite a career behind you in a story. And I actually kind of want to go back um, to when you were 13 years old, you seen a video of a slaughter plant and become a vegetarian. Um, you have a, you know, one of your first jobs on an organic farm. Tell me about where this passion for animal protection and food sustainability came from. Well, Brennan, uh, I'm very impressed by uh, by your homework here. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I was 13, which uh, sadly uh, was 27 years ago. <laughs> um, I did see a video. A friend of mine had like this VHS tape and he showed it to me. And uh, I saw what happened to animals in slaughterhouses and on fur farms and in circuses and factory farms. Mm. And uh, I, I really uh, thought, how could we be doing this? And to me, it just seemed like we were bullying these animals because they couldn't stand up to us. It didn't seem like there was any reason why we were on top and they were on bottom aside from that we are stronger than they are. Right. And it's not like it's not like I was bullied as a kid, nor did I do bullying myself. But I, I always was very sensitive to bullying and I hated seeing bullying. And this to me just seemed like we were bullying 
other individuals simply because they couldn't stand up to us and treating them as if they were just mere commodities, uh, mm-hmm. you know, subjecting them to really some of the most egregious tortures. And for what? Uh, to get cheaper meat so, or so that right. we could have entertainment at the circus or, uh, you know, so that we could have a, a piece of trim around the hood of our, <laughs> our coat. You know, I just thought like, you know, the the suffering that we were inflicting on them was so severe and yet the benefits to us were so trivial. And uh, it, it had a very lasting impression on me and in fact led to my career as uh, as an animal advocate and now as an entrepreneur to try to solve the problem of factory farming of animals. Yeah, and you went on to spend 13 years with the Humane Society, um, really to help eliminate some of those practices. So tell me about some of the biggest problems you've seen during that time. Well, in terms of the farming of animals, some of the most egregious problems that occur are the caging of animals in spaces so small they can barely move their whole lives. And that is not just an extreme practice that happens to be an aberration or it's like one bad apple doing it. These are standard Mm -hmm. practices. And for example, both the egg and the pork industries where animals are locked in cages so small that they can barely move an inch in the pig industry. There are millions of pigs who, as we speak in the United States are in essentially like iron maidens. I mean, the cages Mm -hmm. are two feet wide. They can't turn around. They can do nothing but stand up and lay down. Uh, They develop pressure sores from laying on concrete in the same position all the time. I I mean, it's truly worse than what we would subject the most heinous criminals to. You know, we don't take rapists and murderers and put them in jail cells so small that they can't even lift their arms or they can't even turn around. And so it, it really, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what have these animals done? Like, what crime have they committed to be forced to uh, endure a life of immobilization? The same is so in the egg industry, and and similar types of cruelties exist elsewhere. And so, uh, what uh, I'm I'm proud to have been a part of is a campaign to go state by state and and start uh, passing laws to end those type of extreme confinement practices. And working with many of the biggest retailers, like fast food companies, grocery chains, and so on, to uh, prohibit their suppliers of, for example, pork and eggs, to use those type of extreme confinement practices. And I was very fortunate during that time to be surrounded by some of the most talented people I could ever imagine having the privilege to work Mm. with. And uh, as a group, we were able to do some things that I I think really had an impact on reducing the amount of suffering in the world, primarily this universe of suffering that we're inflicting on on animals. Uh, However, after after doing that for some time, I I came to the conclusion that I think that um, it, it may be that technologies can do even more or might even be more efficient ways to help reduce the amount of misery that we're inflicting on animals. And... That's why I wrote the book Clean Meat as really an exploration of this concept that perhaps it won't be humane sentiment or concerns about sustainability or the environment that changes human behavior, but rather it may just be that we invent new technologies that are so vastly superior to the old technologies that we simply switch to them. Absolutely. And you have this driving mission to reduce suffering on the planet and leave it better than you found it. And so you've sort of tackled this problem of how we're going to efficiently feed an ever-growing population of meat-hungry individuals. So tell me about why this problem keeps you up at night and why you're so passionate about going after it. I'm extremely passionate, Brandon, because the planet isn't getting any bigger. <laughs> Humanity, you know, Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting bigger, but the planet itself isn't getting any bigger. 
And one of the principal ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, primarily on the amount of meat that we eat, because it's mm-hmm. just no longer, it's no longer any secret. Producing animal protein compared to plant protein just takes a lot more land, a lot more water, a lot more greenhouse gas emissions, a lot more resources in general. Well, we all know that, and yet it doesn't change most people's behavior. Meat consumption is still going up, not down, both in the United States and in other countries like China, India, Brazil, right. Mexico, and so on, where there are ever-increasing populations and they want to eat more like Americans do. And we've set a terrible example as a country of how to eat because our diet is really the most resource-intensive diet you can imagine. So what are we going to do? Meat consumption is going up. Human population is going up. And the time that we have to fix this problem is quite limited. There doesn't seem to be any uh, mass rush to widespread vegetarianism. That would be cool if it happened, but (laughs) it doesn't seem likely. Uh, So what can we do? And I think that there are a number of options. One, we can make meat out of plants. So you can take plants and convert them to be something that looks and tastes like meat so that people can still enjoy the sensation of eating meat without having to raise animals for it. And, you know, people don't eat meat because an animal was slaughtered for it. They eat meat because they like the taste of it. They eat meat because it's what they've always eaten. Um, Most people eat meat in spite of the fact that an animal was slaughtered for it, in fact. And so I think that many people will be quite happy to eat these plant-based meats if they can compete on taste and on cost and so on. Uh, Second, we can grow meat from animal cells. So rather than making meat alternatives or meat replacements, we can make meat from actual animal cells. And this isn't science fiction. It's already science fact. Clean meat or cultured meat or cultivated meat is meat that is grown from a tiny little biopsy from an animal cell and grown outside of the animal's body so that you can grow real actual meat without the need to raise and slaughter a whole animal. That's what my book, Clean Meat, is about. You can check out more on that at the website cleanmeatbook.com. But that's what the whole book is about. It's basically telling the story of the pioneers, the entrepreneurs, the investors, the scientists who are racing to commercialize the world's first slaughter-free meat. Now, there are other options in addition to plant-based meat and clean meat. For example, we could simply just eat less meat, eat more, for example, rice and, rice and bean burritos or pasta primavera or you know a, a Szechuan tofu, whatever. Right. There's lots of things that you can eat that are great that don't involve eating meat. But many people really, really want meat. And so that's where a fourth idea comes in, uh, which is the premise of the company that I co-founded about a year and a half ago, The Better Meat Co. And that is that we can take plant proteins and find ways to formulate them so that they can be blended seamlessly into animal meat. So that when people go and eat meat, that they're getting a product that is more plant and less animal. So I'll give you an example, Brandon. So right now, if you think about companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, these are awesome companies doing really cool things, making really innovative products that are entirely animal free. I think of them kind of like the Teslas of the plant-based world. They're Mm. making all electric or all animal-free products that are really good. They're cool, but they cost a lot more. That's why, for example, electric cars still represent less than 1% of all of the uh, cars that are sold in America. Well, plant-based meat still represents less than 1% of all the cars, uh, excuse me, of all the meat that is sold in America as well. And we need to do better than that. And so what if, in addition to having those all-electric or those all-plant-based products, we also are able to hybridize lots of the meat that is out there Mm -hmm. so that you take a technology that allows for the 99% of meat that is being sold to be a lot less meat. 
That's what right. we do at the Better Meat Co. We make products that we sell to major meat users, meat companies, food service companies, meat snack companies, and so on, that they can blend into their meat so they can enhance the taste, nutrition, and sustainability by using a lot less meat. Uh, our biggest partner is Purdue Farms, the chicken company, which blends our plant-based protein formulas into chicken nuggets, chicken tenders, and chicken patties that are marketed as Purdue Chicken Plus. So yes, you're still getting chicken, plus you're getting it boosted with all of this plant-based and vegetable nutrition. Those products are now widely available across the United States in 7,100 supermarkets, from Walmart to Safeway Albertsons to Kroger and so on. And so that's really the premise of what we are trying to accomplish to make hybrid meats a more popular option. Yeah, I think that's a, a very smart um, place to start because if we want people to change, we have to often meet them where they're already at. And as you spoke about, like we're already high meat consumers. We don't necessarily want to be trying the Tesla of the you know, protein meats. And so being able to blend it allows us to kind of dip our toes in, see that, hey, actually, this tastes just as great. And now we're not having to slaughter as many animals to get the amount of meat that we want. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we want to play the cards as they are dealt. I wish that we could have everybody just switch over to plant-based meat today. It would be fantastic. It would be really cool. But that's not the reality. People mm -hmm. love meat and they're wanting to eat more and more meat, whether it's because they think it tastes better, because it's much cheaper. For whatever reasons, they are continuing to eat meat and we need to meet people, pun intended, where they are at. <laughs> Uh, you know, my wife and I recently went to Safeway and we bought a bunch of Beyond Burgers uh, for a cookout we were doing. People loved them, but they were six ninety nine for two patties that are a quarter pounds. So that's $14 a pound. $14 right. a pound compared to the commodity meat that was next to it, which was about three fifty a pound. So, you know, you're dealing in multiples over the cost of meat. It's difficult to penetrate uh, when you have that type of, uh, of a cost premium. What we're doing is selling products that can compete not only on taste, but also on cost with commodity meat. So the major meat users have a real incentive to reduce the amount of meat that's in the food that they're, that they're producing and boosting it to make it taste better and be more nutritious. You know, products that have our uh, plant-based protein formulas in them are uh, much better for the consumer, not just the world, not just for animals, but they have less saturated fat, less cholesterol, uh, fewer calories. So you're getting a product that tastes just as good, but is much better for you and for the world as well. Mm. I think a, a strong aspect or something that's going to be a big impact of this movement is how these things are marketed. Um, you know, when they actually put the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers in the meat aisles, I think that was really a game changer because now people are seeing it right there as an alternative. Yeah. The same thing goes with um, when I was researching you, you were mentioning the dairy industry and then putting in the, you know, almond milks and whatnot inside the actual dairy cartons as an alternative to milk. So how do you see marketing playing out in this? Yeah, you're so right, Brandon. You know, if you look at the plant-based milk industry, a decade ago, it was trading at about maybe 1% of all fluid milk sales. Today, it's 13%. You've seen this influx of soy milks, almond milks, coconut milks, flax milks, oat milks, and so on. Well, maybe something like that will happen in the plant-based meat aisle where you're going to have uh, a major influx of you know, plant-based chicken, pork, beef, uh, crab, lobster, and so on. And the way that it'll happen is by making it familiar. You know, the way that plant-based milks uh, have succeeded so much is that you know, they were marketed directly next to the milk in right. cartons that looked like the regular milk cartons and at prices that were competitive 
with actual cow's milk. Right now, most plant-based meat, you know, Beyond is a is a different story. They've had great success getting into the meat aisle of supermarkets, but most plant-based meat is sold first of all in the natural section of supermarkets, which is kind of like a ghetto of the supermarket that attracts <laughs> only a, a certain kind of consumer. Now, I, I happen myself to be one of those consumers, right. so I'm not denigrating them, but it's not the mainstream consumers that are going there a lot of the time. Uh, second, they're in the frozen section, and mm-hmm. a lot of people don't buy meat frozen. You know, they, a lot of people want their meat fresh, and so. Uh, that's another uh, barrier. And then there's, again, the cost issue, whereas these products are generally sold for anywhere from 200 to 500% the cost of, of regular meat. So uh, there's a lot of things that when we think about how to market food, you need to compete on taste. If it doesn't taste good, nobody's going to buy it. If it's not priced competitively, it's very difficult to compete. And if it's not convenient, meaning it's not in the place where you are accustomed to purchasing it, it's also very difficult. So taste, price, and convenience are kind of like this holy trinity of food marketing. and Plant-based milk succeeded on all three. They got better tasting. They are marketed price competitively and in a convenient location and uh, structure. So when you look at it, it's like you don't really make any type of a change in your mind. You're just buying another product right there. That's what happened. needs to happen with plant-based meat. And we're still years away, I think, from plant-based meat being marketed at a price competitive way. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, t- on taste, it is getting a lot better. I think it's great. I think a lot of the times it's hard to tell the difference uh, for some of the applications. Not all, but, but for some of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other alternatives that you're a big ad, uh, advocate of is this clean meat. And I loved the uh, quote by Winston Churchill that you bring up in your talks that we will escape this absurdity of having to grow an entire animal instead of growing just the parts you want to eat. So yeah. you know, tell me a little bit about this and why you know, you're such an advocate for clean meat. Well, Churchill said that in 1931, and he wrote it in an essay called 50 Years Hence, where he was predicting what the world of 1981 would look like. And he may have been a few decades off again, you know, we didn't start growing clean meat until a couple decades after that. But as usual, he was pretty prescient. He really had had a, a lot of wisdom in that essay, including his prediction that we would not have to raise and slaughter entire animals and we could just grow the parts that we actually want. Now, it may seem like this fantasy to be able to do that, but lots of things have seemed fantastical. So much that we are doing now is, you know, would be foreign to even like the Greek and Roman gods. Like you think about what powers the Greek gods had, and many of them seem quite trivial compared to the powers that we have today. Right. You know, Zeus could throw thunder. Well, you know, we have nuclear bombs and we're <laughs> communicating by video from, you know, hundreds of miles away from each other. I mean, right. these are things that no, nobody really conceived of. And so we shouldn't, uh, you know, it's not saying that anything is possible, but it is to say that I think quite a lot is possible. And we already have now about two dozen companies that are growing clean meat. Now, the reason it's called clean meat is really twofold. One, uh, it's an allusion to clean energy because it's just cleaner for the planet, which is obvious, but it's also literally cleaner. I mean, you think about it right now, we're warned to treat raw meat almost like toxic waste. You mm-hmm. know, if it get, you have to have a different grocery bag for it. If it gets on your counter, you have to disinfect your counter. If you touch it with your hands, you have to wash your hands. That's because there's feces on the meat. Salmonella, E. coli, Campylobacter, these are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if, if we don't cook the crap out of our meat, literally. That's what we're doing. <laughs> cook the crap out of the meat. And with queen meat, though, you don't have to worry so much about intestinal pathogens because these companies aren't growing intestines at all. In fact, right. you're far more likely to infect the meat with your hands than you are for mm. the meat to infect you. 
so I am particularly bullish about the prospects for clean meat because I think that humans really want meat. All the evidence suggests that we really want meat. As soon as poorer cultures start getting more economic success, they start adding meat to their diet. That's why you see skyrocketing rates of meat consumption in places like China and India because their middle people are escaping poverty and growing a middle class. Right. Well, that's great, great for them, but there is a side effect that it's uh, much more taxing on the planet. And so, it, you know, we as Americans need to lead by example and eat less meat ourselves. But we haven't shown any real propensity for doing it. So if people want meat, why not give them the meat, but without all of the negative side effects, without mm. having to raise all those animals and slaughter those animals and all of the land and water and antibiotics and everything else that it takes to produce billions of animals and process them through a system that is extremely unsavory and that most people don't want to learn about because they feel too uncomfortable with it. So because we can produce real, actual animal meat, that to me seems like a tremendous technological advancement that could do uh, enormous amounts to basically free humanity from one of the biggest problems that plagues us, which is our reliance on an animal agriculture system that is dragging us down in many ways. So I, I think it's an important uh, technological advancement. I don't think it's the only answer to this problem, but I do think it's a promising answer and we should be investing more than we are in it because it's going to take a lot to actually get this to a point where it can be commercialized in any meaningful sense. Yeah, um, I really like this uh, idea that you brought up of possibly there may be a time when we can, you know, grow our own meat in our kitchens, kind of like you would, you know, do home brewing. You might be able to yeah. do home, you know, meat growing. What do you think uh, that looks like for us in the future? Well, Brandon, it's a fantasy that I have. So if you go, for example, right now to your friend's house, and they may have a bread maker or an ice cream maker on their counter. You don't even really even remark on it. But mm -hmm. what if what if they had a meat maker? Wouldn't that be cool? If they actually had a little device where maybe they ordered like uh, tea bags full of stem cells and they can drop them in and get meat that you could then eat right off of your own counter. Talk about right. local. You, you know, and that's not possible today, but maybe it is tomorrow. Now, you know, admittedly, it takes like weeks right now for these cells to grow into muscle, which is, of course, a lot less time than it takes an animal. I mean, a cow gets slaughtered after 12 months. Um, so you'd have to know what you wanted to eat weeks in advance. But, you know, that's what people do when they brew beer at their homes right now. You know, you're brewing beer for weeks in, uh, at a time to uh, get whatever local artisanal brew you want. Or maybe restaurants will have that, too. Maybe restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, they'll have their own artisanal touch where they can make their own craft meats right there, right in the back of the restaurant. I think that would be pretty cool. You could even imagine a situation where, for example, maybe they had a pig whose cells they had used to grow it. And that pig was right there. You know, the pig lives. a mascot. Right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, guys, mascot and people can eat it. You know, some people may be freaked out by that, but I actually think it would be pretty cool and say, hey. You know, the way, the way we did this in the past was uh, was pretty dirty. And mm -hmm. now now we can look this pig in the eye and say, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you are still alive. Yeah. What, what kind of social implications and like ethics do you see around this? Like, because I could imagine, um, you know, wanting to try dog if I knew I didn't have to go out and slay my own dog to do that. Right. And I think yeah, yeah. we'd have a closer connection with, you know, some of the animals that we necessarily call dumb now or whatever. Yeah, good question, Brennan. So, I mean, you know, look, there's nothing ethically problematic with that. I think a lot of people have a an ick factor, a yuck factor, um, you know, but uh, from an ethical perspective, no. Now, of course, there's lots of things that may disgust people that aren't unethical. 
you know, if you're walking down the street and, you know, you, you see, you know, trash on the ground, you pick it up and eat it. There's nothing unethical with doing that. Um, but it may disgust some people and they may not want to do it. I think the same is so for something like what you're referring to. Lots of people don't want to eat dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if somebody does and you can culture actual dog cells to grow meat without harming any dog ever, I mean, from an ethical perspective, I don't really think it matters that much. Uh, so, you know, this also introduces the possibility not just of consuming animals who you might consider it unethical to eat today, but also of consuming even extinct animals. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, Geltor, there's a company called Geltor that went online. They got the Mastodon genome. Now, the Mastodon is this elephant-like animal that went extinct pretty much when humans arrived in North America uh, thousands of years ago, like the progenitors of people who we now call indigenous, their ancestors essentially, um, you know, like in, committed a megafaunal extinctions in the way that humans all over the globe did pretty much after leaving Africa. Well, some of those mastodons still exist in like icy graves. And as they thaw, we've been able to sequence the, the mastodon genome. Well, Geltor, which is a East Bay, California uh, startup, Took that, took that, and they ended up producing mastodon collagen, the protein that is used to make gelatin. And they made gummy candies with it. And not gummy wow. bears, they made gummy <laughs> elephants with mastodon genome, with mastodon collagen, and they ate it. It's pretty amazing. They actually ate it. So this is the first time like humans have eaten mastodon protein in thousands of years. It's a pretty remarkable story. Um, interestingly enough, Geltor also made a lab-grown leather cover for my book, Clean Meat. So the very mm. first copy of the book was bound in a lab-grown leather. And uh, it was a, a historic artifact, the first ever book bound in lab-grown leather. We auctioned it off on eBay. Um, one person paid 13000 US dollars for it. And all charity, it was for a charity. So all the proceeds went to the Good Food Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that works to advance the cellular agriculture space. So there's so much cool things that we can do, not just growing meat, but also growing gelatin, leather, milk, egg whites, and so on, that we may end up freeing ourselves from this old technology of animal exploitation and go to a newer technology where we're basically using cells to end up creating the products that we love and we can get them better and better. You know, the cow can only change so much before, um, you know, without getting much better than the cow is for meat. That's not what they evolved for. They didn't evolve to produce meat to be tasty, they evolved for very different reasons. Well, we can now start selecting cells. And the way that we've selected cows and chickens and pigs, we can start selecting cells to produce the most succulent, the most tasty, the most Mm -hmm. nutritious cuts of meat that humans have ever had. And it may even introduce an entire new category of food to our experience. Let me give you an example. So, you know, think about the time when we first domesticated cows and we started having milk, we never really drank any milk aside from human breast milk before. Now you have cow's milk, but you don't yet have cheese. During that time, nobody knew anything about cheese. Nobody knew about anything about the existence of cheese. Well, now we have an entirely new category of food with literally hundreds of different types of cheese from Swiss to Gouda to Brie and so on that open up an entirely novel culinary experiences that people hadn't even conceived that now are commonplace for people. Well, what if this type of cellular agriculture creates entirely new culinary experiences for future humans so that they will be eating foods that we can't even conceive of today? That's amazing. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the uh, micronutrient makeup of this clean meat. 
Cause I know like right now there's a big difference between like grass fed beef and grain fed beef and what it does for your microbiome and, you know, kind of how we've evolved um, to have those micronutrients from the food that we eat and what they've ate. Um, so how are we doing this with clean meat? Sure. Well, the adage is correct. You are what you eat and cells are what they eat. The cells in your body are what you eat and so on. And so what you feed these cells, these muscle cells will contribute to what type of a nutrient profile you're going to get. Now, some clean meat companies are trying to produce meat that just mimics meat today. That's the exact same thing. And that's, I think that's really reasonable. It's a good way to start. However, there is an, an idea to create meat that is better than meat. So for example, rather than having meat that, uh, you know, has a lot of saturated fat, the way that burgers do, you could have meat that has a lot of omega-3 fatty acids. So in theory, you could make a burger that instead of causing heart attacks actually prevents them. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other ways. So you can, for example, feed the cells certain nutrients that will get you uh, better nutritional profiles. Uh, I'll give you an example. So if you have a, an egg farm today and you feed your chickens flaxseed, you're going to get eggs that have a higher omega-3 content. So when you eat those eggs, you'll get more omega-3s. Well, you can do the same with these cells. You can feed them certain nutrients so that you can um, you can create products that have the type of nutritional profile that the end consumer is going to want. So it's much, it's very malleable and uh, really the sky is the limit. Mm, that's awesome. The other thing that this does is really, you know, it's taking us away from some of those practices that we were talking about before. And I'm wondering, do you think that as we move forward, we're going to have a more symbiotic relationship with these animals that we're eating now? Yes, I think that as we reduce our reliance on the exploitation of animals, we will come to recognize that these animals are far more interesting, far more mm -hmm. intelligent, and far more deserving of respect than we ever gave them. For so long, our relationship with animals has been largely based on violence and domination. However, if we no longer have to exploit them, I believe that we will come to a relationship that's more based upon compassion and respect. For a very long time, we have viewed animals merely as commodities who exist for the sole purpose of serving us. Really, it's almost like in the same way as like Galileo and Copernicus helped us to understand that we are not the center of the, uh, of the physical universe. Well, we may soon come to recognize that we are not the center of the moral universe either. That the other animals with whom we share this planet don't exist merely for us, but rather they exist with us. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to come to that conclusion while we are still relying on the exploitation of animals. There's just too much cognitive dissonance to accept that conclusion. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's so difficult for people to accept something that their livelihood or their, their lifestyle depends on them not accepting. Yet, when we don't have to slaughter them, when we don't have to torment them in factory farms anymore, maybe we'll come to think of them quite differently. I think of this, for example, with horses. You know, while we were relying on horses to be our laborers, it was very hard to view them in a sentimental way. Well, <laughs> now that we don't have to rely on horses for transportation anymore, horses are essentially companion animals for, for mm -hmm. a lot of people, uh, which would have been a laughable thing to people uh, 150 years ago. Uh, similarly, if you go back to uh, the whaling industry, you know, you'd ask somebody 150 years ago, hey, will there be a major industry that is based on people paying to get on boats merely to <laughs> look at whales? Just to look at them. They don't do anything. Just look at them. And people, I mean, I've done it. My wife and I have gone, uh, you know, like we are a, a, a very different, we're in a very different place with regard to our relationship with whales. But that was enabled by our 
freeing ourselves from needing whale oil to lubricate the industrial revolution, to produce fuel for our lamps and our homes and so on. And so I think that the, you know, people think, well, if you can change your mind, your actions will change in, in subsequent fashion. I doubt that's true. I think it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to mm. think your way into a new way of acting. Now, I didn't come up with that. In fact, the first time I ever heard that was, uh, from AJ Jacobs, who's a great author who I recommend. I don't know that AJ came up with it either, but you know, there is this adage that it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. And I believe it. And so when we no longer are reliant on the exploitation of uh, chickens and pigs and cows, I think they will come to see them very differently. And I think that future generations are going to be pretty shocked by how we treated them. And they'll wonder how could anyone have ever allowed that type of mistreatment to occur on such a routine basis. Mm, yeah. You, your business and um, actually a lot of the businesses that you interview on your podcast is around this idea of doing business for good. One of your, uh, your guests stated on your podcast, the purpose of your company is not to make money. The purpose of your company is what you determine it to be. So talk to yes. me about going into business to create good and change in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for listening to that. So uh, first, the guest you're referring to is John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods. And he has a great analogy. You know, he is the author of this book, Conscious Capitalism, which I highly recommend. But, you know, John's analogy is the following. Many people think of the purpose of business is to make money. But that's complete nonsense. That would be like saying, well, the purpose of your body is to make red blood cells. Well, it's true. <laughs> if you don't make red blood cells, you'll die. No doubt. You need to make red blood cells in order to keep living. But that's the purpose of your body. The purpose of your body is to do whatever you deem it to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think of my own purpose as to reduce the amount of suffering on the planet. I want to leave the planet a better place when I die, that there was less suffering and more happiness on the planet because I had existed. That's mm -hmm. the basic purpose that I give to my own life. And yeah, the same is so with a business. You know, your business has to make money. If it doesn't make money, it will die. But that's not the purpose of the business. The purpose of the business is whatever you deem it. So Google's purpose is to organize all of the world's information and make it easily accessible to us. You know, Amazon is to be the most customer-friendly uh, company on the face of the planet. Uh, Whole Foods is to basically help people live healthier. Um, now, you can argue whether these companies actually fulfill their purpose or not, but that is what their goal is. That's what their founders created it to do. And the purpose of uh, my business, the Better Meat Co., sure, of course, we, we, we need to make money. But the purpose is to help the major meat users do better. We want to help the meat companies and the meat snack companies and the food service companies and the restaurant chains that are using so much meat. We want to help them do better. We want to help them use less meat and more plants because everyone from their customers to the planet to animals and so on will be better off as a result of it. Mm. You spent uh, 13 years as the VP of the Humane Society. What was it that clicked for you that you decided it wasn't a nonprofit that was going to help you fulfill this purpose, but it was a business? You know, when Mark Post, the Dutch research scientist, uh, first debuted the, the first clean burger in 2013, uh, I, I then started thinking, well, maybe this uh, maybe this type of thing, culturing animal cells into meat will actually do more. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking then, I wonder what the best way that I could do something. Because at that time, I thought, well, what do I know? I'm not a tissue engineer. I'm not a molecular <laughs> biologist. I can't do anything, but I can talk about it. I can encourage it. I can encourage people to invest in it. 
And then I started seeing companies like Beyond really take off and do more and more. And I thought, you know, maybe these companies are really going to do something big also to put a dent in the problem. And then I started researching, you know, what was it that ended up freeing animals from various types of exploitation? And in reading the book, The Longest Struggle by uh, my friend, the late author, Norm Phelps, he mentioned that he thought Henry Ford had done more for horses than all of animal advocates combined Mm -hmm. ever. And, you know, for thousands of years, we had used horses as laborers. And you you look at the founding of the American animal movement in the the late 1860s and 1870s, it was almost entirely because of the mistreatment of horses in the streets. And these uh, campaigners back then were trying to get new laws on the books. They wanted to get mandatory uh, resting hours for the horses. They want to get Sabbath days for the horses. So one day a week, they couldn't be worked. They want to get watering stations for the horses, all these things to improve the plight of the horses. But in the end, you know, Henry Ford did more for those horses than they ever dreamt of doing. They never dreamt of freeing horses from being our laborers. They just wanted to make their lot better. Right. And then you look at whaling. You know, we used to have a major whaling industry, and there were lots of concerns about the extinction of whales. Letters to the editor going back to the 19th century arguing that we were going to hunt whales into extinction. There were sustainability efforts to try to prevent people from, uh, you know, from whaling. And what happened? Well, kerosene really put the whale industry almost into extinction itself uh, because we all of a sudden had a much better way to light our homes than we did from whaling uh, the seas to get their oil. You know, the reason we don't exploit carrier pigeons anymore for our mail isn't because we have any concern about pigeons. It's because we found better ways to transmit information. And the list goes on and on and on. And so that was when this started for me. And I never really thought how I could be of service, though. You know, I wasn't a business person. I wasn't a scientist. I didn't really know anything. Uh, what I knew about was how to lobby for animals. Well, that's what led me to write the book, Clean Meat, because I thought that I could contribute to this field by hopefully inspiring people to get involved themselves, whether right. as investors or entrepreneurs or scientists, to get involved themselves and to join companies, start companies, and try to advance and commercialize these technologies that could really do an enormous amount to fight climate change, to help animals, and so on. Uh, after publishing the book, um, I started thinking what I wanted to do next. I, I got very fortunate, and the book did well. And I, I started thinking, well, what should I do next? And I did contemplate writing another book and 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 was going to do that. But I started thinking, do I really want to just write about the people who I think may end up saving the world or do I want to become one of them myself? Mm. And uh, that's when I decided, well, maybe I'll do both. And so I do continue to write and I, I try to shine a light on those who are doing cool things in the hopes that it will inspire other people to do it as well. That's why I have the podcast business for, business for good. That's why I write about what other companies are doing uh, to try to promote them. But I've also started my own company, as you mentioned, uh, the Better Miko, and we are. Uh, I hope that we can contribute in some small way to doing our piece of good in the world as well. Yeah, uh, your wife is also an entrepreneur and founder of Plant Based on a Budget. So, what is it like for you two to be sharing this mission and tackling it from different angles? Oh, uh, well, Brandon, I live in my wife's shadow. So she's a very popular uh, cookbook author and blogger and influencer uh, with a brand called Plant Based on a Budget. And, uh, you know, it it is not uncommon for her to be recognized in in public. (laughs) And I'm the guy who takes the photo when somebody sees her and they say, hey, can we get a photo? I'm I'm the one who takes the photo for them. So uh, I'm very pleased to be relegated to the background in in our uh, marriage for sure. 
Um, but I've been very impressed. And my wife, whose name is Tony Okamoto, she has uh, really done an enormous amount with this brand, Plant Based on a Budget, which basically shatters this myth. You know, the myth that you're going to be spending a lot more money if you're going to eat plant-based. Tony mm. shows how easy it is to consume a plant-based diet while actually saving money, that by eating green, you save your own dough. You know, a, a, a much better, a fatter bank account by doing it. So, uh, you know, she, her latest cookbook is called Plant Based on a Budget. You can go check it out or follow her on Instagram or whatever. But uh, it's a great brand and uh, she is uh, pretty prolific on social media. So far more so than I am. So you'll have a lot more fun following her, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, all these things that we've talked about um, are solutions that we're implementing now, but may take a while um, before they're, you know, actually putting a big dent in the problem that we've been talking about, especially outweighing the population growth that we're going to see upcoming in the future. Do you see these alternatives making a big enough dent fast enough? I don't know, Brandon. That's what really keeps me up at night. Uh, I think there's a tremendous progress that's occurring, but whether it'll happen fast enough is really what I'm worried about. You know, like you have these aggressive predictions, for example, from Barclays that um, plant-based and cultured meat will comprise 10% of the meat market by the year 2030. That's mm -hmm. amazing. I hope it's true, but 10%, that means nine out of 10 pieces of meat being sold still comes from animals, which almost surely will be from factory farms. So, uh, you know, I, I really hope it can happen faster. I don't know that that's possible. Um, I'm working hard to do what we can to speed that up. But uh, I, my biggest fear is not that there's not enough progress. It's just that it's not happening fast enough. Right. Um, I think a huge part of this too is the people that are going to be against it. So like um, the American economy has a huge part of it. That's agriculture, that's animal farming. And so do you think there, we have this ability to train and reskill some of these farmers to be able to have them be brewers of meat or, you know, doing some of these alternative meats instead of what they've been doing for hundreds of years? Well, I don't think that farmers are going to become microbiologists, but I do think that they can farm different things. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, many of the former tobacco growers have switched as Americans are smoking less and they switched to growing other crops. Um, as you know, demand, for example, has gone way up for chickpeas because we're eating a lot more hummus as a country now than we ever did before. So right. uh, the Wall Street Journal a few years ago had a really great story about the transition from many uh, tobacco growers to growing chickpeas. So it, it's not that they can continue doing what they have been doing, but it is that they can continue farming. They'll just be farming different things. Um, and I also uh, think that we ought to be uh, essentially paying and incentivizing farmers to leave land fallow as plant-based and cultured meats require so much less land than uh, growing animals or growing animal feed. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot more land that we don't know what to do with. Well, my hope is that we can return that land to wildlife and that farmers can be paid basically to keep uh, wetlands as wetlands or return them to wetlands or, uh, you know, have a, a renaissance, like a rewilding of, of much of the right. parts of nature that we've taken away from animals. Yeah. And um, what other industries are you most excited for in the future, such as like vertical agriculture and things like that? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge proponent of vertical ag and especially hydroponic and even aeroponic agriculture. Ways that we can produce more with less are the ways of the future. 
I don't believe that we are going to solve the sustainability problems that we have by returning to 19th century methods of agriculture. We're going mm-hmm. to do with 21st century methods of agriculture. For example, ver- vertical urban farms where we can you know, grow lots of food in very small spaces that go very high or hydroponic or aeroponic where we can grow without, you know, with very, very little need uh, for water and other uh, and other types of things that can pollute the planet uh, by our use of them. Uh, so I, I think that those are extremely exciting. And uh, I also think that, you know, not just growing animal cells to make meat, but even using various types of microorganisms to produce other types of foods that we like. So, for example, uh, you know, if you look at a company like corn, Q-U-O-R-N, you know, this is a company, they're based in Britain, but they sell all over the United States, too. You know, they basically found a fungus that humanity has never consumed before, and they ferment it and turn it into a food that it doesn't really taste like meat, but it tastes really good. It's very meaty, but it tastes good. It's a new category of food. Mm. Um, and I, I love it. I eat it all the time. I think it's great. It's high in protein. It's a complete protein. Um, but that's an example of you know how a, how a uh, fermentation technology allowed for a new type of food to essentially be invented. And now people eat it and they really enjoy it. So I'm pretty bullish on lots of different types of food technology that will enable us to produce more with less. Mm. I also like this idea of bringing the agriculture into, you know, dense urban populations. Obviously, as the um, population grows, we get more denser in cities and whatnot. But um, I also came from an architecture background. And so we looked a lot at, you know, vertical agriculture and creating these kind of community spaces within buildings around food. Mm. And I could see, you know, a vertical agriculture and maybe a clean meat lab and having this community center where, you know, we're a part of our food again um, in a direct sense. Oh, I love that, Brandon. God, I hope I live long enough to go visit such a facility when it exists. Yeah. Do you think with this ability to you know, grow our own meats, that we have a greater relationship with our food again. Because right now we go to the grocery store, we buy chicken that we've never seen the chicken, we never see how it lived. Where now, if we're actually in direct contact, you know, with what we're doing, might have a better relationship. I totally agree with you, Brandon. Right now, people know almost nothing about how their food is produced. I mean, it's unbelievable. But and yeah, most people don't want to know. Uh, you know, the more people learn about how animals are raised for food, the less interested they are in eating it. So I, I don't think that we can do anything but better with these type of technologies that, you know, once you start learning about how animals are raised for food today, the desire to create a better alternative will be very high. And, uh, you know, we can imagine that you'll have, like you say, these uh, clean meat facilities that will actually be in urban environments and people can come and take tours of them. And it'll be very transparent. I mean, many mm-hmm. of these companies are talking about literally having glass walls where you can see the meat being made. Imagine an industrial slaughterhouse or, or offering you the ability to <laughs> come on and, and walk in and see how the meat being is being made. They're not going to do that because they don't want you to see it. So right. the so I, I think that this will do an enormous amount to actually improve our uh, knowledge of where our food comes from. Mm. Well, before I get to my last question, where can people find you and all the great work that you're doing? That's so nice of you, Brandon. So I'm on Twitter at Paul H. Shapiro. Uh, I'd love to hear from you there. And uh, you can also email me. My website is paul-shapiro.com. Again, that's paul-shapiro.com. So you can get in touch with me either way, but I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. Uh, My very last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Well, um, my view is that the evolution that we need 
is going to take a long time if we are counting on people to do the right thing for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Most people are don't want to change. They want to keep on doing the same thing. And so we need to make making the right decision the easier, more convenient, more attractive option. We cannot rely on people just to do the right thing for the right reason. So in order for us to evolve as a society, we have to create the incentives and the structures that actually make it easier to do the right thing. That means making plant-based meats and cultured meats less expensive than animal meat. That makes means making them tastier and more nutritious than animal meat so that you would have to be a fool not to choose these options because they are just that much better. I mean, how many people want to use print film today, right? Very <laughs> few. We're all quite happy to have digital film because it's much better. I mean, I remember uh, when I was, uh, it was probably about 20 years ago or so when one hour photo came out and I was like so psyched. I couldn't believe it. We're going to have our, fo- our, our, our photos in one hour. I thought it was amazing. Well, you know, imagine today that it took an hour to get a photo. Imagine it took a minute to get a photo. You'd be outraged. If your phone took you one minute to get a photo, you would be in, enraged. Yeah, throw well, the phone. <laughs> right. And it's not like people did it because they're like, oh, I want to use fewer resources. You know, all the chemicals needed to process uh, print photos or all the, the photo paper needed. It's just because it's way better. It's mm-hmm. way more convenient. And that's what we need to do with meat. It's a big problem and we need to innovate our way out of it. Yeah, meet people where they are, as we spoke about before. Amen. I'm with you, Brandon. All right. Well, thank you, Paul, so much for coming on the show today. It was a wonderful talk. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brandon. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.